to Genesis chapter 40. Uh, last uh, week, Esther and I were at the pastor's conference, pastor and wife's conference, and it was really good. I got a chance to talk to Dr. Gary Bershears. He's a theologian, um, and really was interesting. I, I took him aside, and I asked him a couple of questions. It was fun just to talk to him a little bit about Scripture. He's another guy that can read Greek and Hebrew, along with, it's really Dr. Justin Alfred uh, he's going to be here with us, guys. You don't want to miss him. You've heard him before, but uh, Justin is one of the, he actually teaches Hebrew and Greek at uh, uh, Azusa Pacific in San Diego. They have a campus down there. He's actually the Greek and Hebrew teacher for the college. I mean, he's, he's a scholar, and I love uh, Justin because he's simple and uh, just a blessing to have as a friend. Him and I go shotgun shooting. He's from Mississippi. And he talks like Elvis. He says, Brother Lee. <laughs> you'll, you'll love him, guys. Uh, plan to be with us on that. But here in chapter 40 is where we find ourselves. And the series that we're in, as we go through the book of Genesis, we're coming to that last section. It's really all about Joseph. These last chapters are all about Joseph. And I've called it Joseph uh, Integrity and Forgiveness because that's what he represents. And we see that in his life over and over again. We'll see that again tonight. But you'll recall a couple of weeks ago when I was here, we were in chapter 39. And it was about uh, Joseph and his life, very successful. God was leading him. Uh, God had prospered him. And then all of a sudden, boom. Uh, Remember, it was Potiphar's wife. She tried to seduce him. And uh, his life has been uh, really one pit after the other, you could say. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers his father gave him a coat. Boy, that made his brothers, they were so jealous of that because it really represented first, uh, it meant that he was the son of, uh, that was going to receive all of the blessing. He was like the firstborn son, although he was the lastborn and his brothers just hated him for it. They threw him in a pit, as you remember. And then Judah, his older brother, came up with a plan to sell him uh, into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt. But the whole time he doesn't complain. You don't see any complaints. Even tonight in, our, in this chapter, there's no complaints. He's just a man of integrity. He's trusting the Lord. And God is sovereignly leading him. He's leading him through this whole, whole uh, episode. As we look at this man, again, he, he's a picture of Christ. And I'm going to give you a bunch of different types. Halfway through our study tonight, I'll show you how he's a type of Jesus Christ. As we look at this uh, man in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So here we come to chapter 40. And, and he's going to be in prison. So this is the second pit, really. He's going to go into a pit, and he's going to be in prison. And it's while he's in this pit or in the pits of life that we learn how to trust God in our pits. You ever been in the pits? We used to say that all the time. They use different lingo now. It's, we were always in the pits when I was growing up. And it just means depression. Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever been in a trial as a Christian? And really, how do you respond? How do you act as a Christian? As you grow in the Lord, you learn. You're going to learn more as you grow in Christ and you you learn from the Word of God that God will allow you to go into a pit. He'll allow you to go through a trial. And there's a purpose. He's refining you as a person. (laughs) Most of us go, Lord, I can do without the pit. You know, I can do without the refinement. I'm pretty good. But God knows best for his children. Wouldn't you agree? And so he's going to lead you into these places. Now, this is the second pit that Joseph uh, finds himself in. 
And if you'll go back to uh, verse 21 of chapter 39, just look back there. Notice it says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So now he's in prison. He's in the second pit, but the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him in the pit. We're going to learn that tonight. I hope, Christians, that you really take to heart the word of God here and and see Joseph's life in the pit because we find ourselves in those kind of places. Your pit might be financial difficulty. It might be a relationship, marriage. It could be a wayward son or daughter, a child, a grandchild, a pit. It's a difficult thing that you're being led through, but it's something we all have little control over. We find ourselves in the pit. We just can't conquer it. And it's this story, Joseph's story, that teaches us that living for God is not easy. It's such an important point for us to learn. Living for God is not easy, and God will allow us, his children, to go through hardships. Let me show you a scripture, and I'm going to come back to the scripture at the end of the study here. Look what James says, James 1 These two verses here, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you struggle, when you're in a pit, count it joy. Did you know that? As believers, we're supposed to see every situation in our lives as God is leading and directing. So when we find ourselves in financial difficulty or something else that we ourselves did not lead ourselves into. I mean, you can make a a dumb boneheaded decision and find yourself in a pit. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God leading you into a pit and you just found yourself there. Boom, you're inside. You didn't choose to go there, whatever. This is what James, James is saying, count it a joy when you find yourself in the pit in a trial, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In other words, God is giving you a test when you're in the trial, when you're in the pit. And the test isn't for him. He knows who you are. The test is for you. The test is so that you'll know how strong you are in Christ. You'll know what you need to work on. You'll know how weak you really are. And, and, you'll, and you'll come out of the other side of the pit and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for teaching me that, Lord. God wants to teach us through those things. And then here James says, but let patience have its perfect work. In other words, stay in that trial. Allow the Lord to do his work that you may be complete. The word's perfect there. Complete, lacking nothing. So God has a purpose for the pit, and he's going to help us overcome. This is a great example here in this Genesis chapter 40. So let's ask God's blessing on his word tonight. Father, as we now open your word and and begin to study, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us according to your ways. Lord, our ways are not yours. Your ways are so much higher and so much greater. And yet sometimes we're left wondering why. Many times we're we're left wondering, what am I doing in the pit? Why am I depressed? Why am I so despondent? Father, I pray that this story about Joseph and this man of integrity, this man of forgiveness, that we would learn. We'd learn how to, to get through the pit, Lord, for your glory and your purpose in our lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll remember that in chapter 39, we find Joseph in the dungeon. He's in a prison. 
But it's very important for you to recognize where this prison is. Because at the beginning of verse, or chapter 39, we find out that the captain of the guard is this man named Potiphar. He's like the head security guy, the head general of all the security forces for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is, is so wealthy, so rich. I mean, think about the wealth of Egypt. It's a vast uh, economy because they have the Nile River. They're, they're growing and transporting grain all over the world. Very, very uh, wealthy, wealthy society. And Pharaoh uh, is, is its leader. And it's so interesting when you read about the story that you find that this man Potiphar, is, he's, he's right up there. He's one of the, the main right-hand men of Potiphar. He's the captain of the guard. But it's in his house that he has a prison. Maybe it's in the basement. Maybe there's a dungeon. It doesn't tell us where it is, but it's in his house. That's, we do know that. But Joseph is now in this pit. He's in the prison, but he's not whining. He's not complaining. He's, he's not doing any of those things. He's not crying the blues. His attitude is really like, if God wants to keep me in prison, then a prisoner I'll be. I mean, that's really his attitude when you look at him. He's depending on the Lord. He's trusting in the Lord. And God has sovereignly brought him to this place, this pit. I want to start in verse 21 of chapter 39. So go to chapter 39, verse 21. Here's my first point. God prospers Joseph in prison. But the Lord, verse 21, was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of of the keeper of the prison. So there's no doubt here that Joseph's success, success here is because of God's blessing. This is the blessing of God that's being passed on from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph. This is God's blessing. He's prospering him. And then it says back in chapter 39, verse 2, go all the way back to verse 2. Notice, the Lord was with Joseph. And this is why sin is so easy for each and every one of us to do. That's why it's so easy. Because it's our nature. It's our fallen nature. I default like my computer. It's not working, not working. So we restart, right? And it goes back to all its default settings. Your default setting is to sin. That's why. Because you're a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. That's why. You've inherited that nature like a disease. So here's my point. God is not responsible for sin. Sin came from outside of God. Where did sin come from? That first man, out of rebellion and out of disobedience. So there, this is kind of philosophical in terms of where did sin come from, but the Bible makes it very clear that it came from outside of God. Everything that God made, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, I'll bust through these. I'm not going to read them all, but I'll mention them real quick. Everything that God makes in chapter 1 and 2 is good. It's good. And each day, he says it's good. Chapter 1, verse 10, at the very end, it's good. Chapter 1, verse 12, it's good. Chapter 1, verse 18, it's good. Chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 25, it's good. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 31. Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was, notice, very good good. It was complete. It was good. It was holy. It was righteous. Everything that God had made was perfect. It was sinless. And then we come to chapter three. Because of man's sin, all of us now have been corrupted. And the world around us has been corrupted too. That's man's original sin. Lawlessness, sinfulness, rebellion. 
Now, on the other hand, the Bible says that, that God is only holy and righteous. So sin did not originate with God. God is sinless or without sin. There's no sin in him. And because of that, he can't be tempted to sin. Uh, very interesting. When you study Jesus, he was, he, Jesus was 100% God, as if he weren't man. But he also was a man. He bled, he wept, he had feelings. And he endured that stuff without sin. See, he becomes our example. If he did it, we can follow him. He's our leader in that regard. And so really, again, important to understand that God cannot be tempted to do sin. 1 John 1, verse 5, here it is behind me on the screen. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God's not responsible for sin. Sin didn't come from God. Where did sin come from? From Adam, from that one man, outside of God. This is Christian worldview. This is more than philosophy. This is the truth from God's word. So here's the next philosophical question. Here it is on, my, on the screen. Why did God allow it? Why did God allow sin? And here's the answer. So that you and I could freely love and honor God. By choice, we could freely honor him and love him. That's why he allowed it. And secondly, so that he, being an all-loving, all-gracious God, could demonstrate his love in the world. Those are, those are the two reasons why God allowed sin. God allowed sin to reveal his eternal plan of redemption. In Revelation 13, verse 8, I love this verse, but notice what this verse implies. Look at it. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus, the plan was to, to allow the spotless lamb, Jesus, to be slain his blood to flow, his, his body to be broken, to pay the penalty of sinners. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the earth. This was God's plan all along. Here's what someone says. Listen to this quote. Sin was part of the plan, even though God was never the author or originator of sin. Did you catch that? Sin was part of the plan, even though God was never the author or originator of it. So God's creatures chose by volition to sin rather than obedience to God. That's why there's judgment for sinners. That's why there's something at the end of life where you, you're going to answer to God because God's showing his grace in the world. He's displayed his, his love and grace and mercy through the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that we as Christians live for, that we share with one another, that we tell the world about. So sin didn't come from God. God's not responsible for sin. His creatures are. Again, that's Christian worldview. Man's sinfulness is why. God displayed his love, his grace, and his mercy. And he demonstrates that, Romans 5.8. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. That God demonstrates his love toward us, that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. I, I love that truth. So, Genesis, the book of origins. We're learning about the, the world created, man created, sin starts. Everything starts here in this book, but also redemption. The plan of redemption starts right here. And that's why it's so important to understand this. 
Now, in verses 14 through 15 in chapter 3, we see the serpent and the curse. Now, so, so man has sinned, and God goes directly to the serpent. He's the one that came to Eve, right? So let's really quickly cover this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, what did he do? Lured Eve, beguiled Eve. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So the serpent is now cursed by God. And the serpent, a snake, becomes this perpetual symbol of that original story. Every time you see a serpent, that's, I mean, women, do you like, how many women do you like serpents? Do you remember, it was two years ago I brought a serpent in, you remember that? Some of you do. You can tell the one sitting next to you. I, I, my daughter saw a garter snake out here about four feet long, and I went outside and picked it up and brought it in here. And it was just crawling. It actually crawled in my shirt, and it was like a little bull snake, just a little harmless little gopher snake, which we really need right now because we have gophers out there. But, but that snake, every time you see it, some, some of you go, ooh, gives you the creeps, right? It's a, it's a perpetual symbol of God's judgment on Satan. Snakes, they illustrate the curse on Satan. Every time you see that, that's what you're supposed to think. Verse 15, notice in verse 15, this is what God says. And I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your seed, here it is, and her seed. Speaking of the seed that would come from the woman, he says, and he shall bruise your head. He's going to crush you. You're going to ultimately die, the, the seed that comes from this woman. So the seed is really important. But you're only going to bruise his heel. You'll have a little authority. You'll, you'll put Jesus on the cross. He'll die willingly, vicariously. You'll, you'll just bruise his heel, but he's going to crush you, his seed. So God is revealing, this is the, the truth of this, Genesis 3, verse 15, that God is going to, by seed and through some people that are going to come in the future, we're going to read about them in, in tonight. You know about them already, the, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The seed is moving. We follow that story as we've studied through uh, this wonderful book of, of uh, Genesis. The seed of the Messiah is going to come through this chosen line. So, from the very beginning, redemption and God's pronounce, he pronounces defeat for Satan from the beginning. But there's also a curse, not only on Satan, but on man. And I, I just want to touch base on this really quick. The, God's curse on man and woman here because they sinned. For women, sin brought two things, pain and childbirth and conflict between her and her husband. It makes sense, huh? If you've had a baby, it's painful. And I, I mean, I say that and I haven't experienced that, but I've seen it five times. It's painful. And then secondly, that conflict. Notice in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. You'll want to usurp his authority. You want to be over your husband. And he's going to rule over you. There's going to be conflict in your marriage relationship. How many thinks that's true? If you're married, you're going to say, Pastor, I know that. That happens in my relationship as well. And then for the man, verse 17, 
Notice this, men. Adam, uh, then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it shall bring forth to you. So you're going to go out and work the field. Before you walked to fruit and just ate it in the garden, now you've got to work for it. It's going to die. It's going to rot. It's going to need to be watered and cultivated. Now it's going to be hard for you to get food. That's the point here. In the sweat, verse 19, of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. So man's, uh, re- the result of sin in man's life is this sweat and hard labor and backache and sorrow. And again, all you men say amen to that. You know, it's, it's hard. Work is hard. But God had a plan. He had a plan, and his plan is redemption. My next point here, God's plan of redemption. After pronouncing the curse, look at verse 21. It's amazing. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. What was that for? Because they had sinned. And they looked at each other, and for the first time, they, 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 they felt shame. They were naked. And in their shame, God's going to cover their shame. So what does God have to do to make animal skin? You can't put a live raccoon on him or a skunk. So he's got to kill the animal. So God sacrifices one of his creation, and he covers them, their shame, with that animal. Isn't that fascinating? This is God's plan of redemption. God wants to cover sin. He wants to eradicate it. He wants to take care of it in the heart and life of his creation. He loves you. And we see that, again, from the very beginning. In Hebrews 2.9, here's a verse behind me on the screen, but we see Jesus, the writer says, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering and death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He died in our place, Jesus. That's what that verse is, is communicating. So God's plan of redemption, again, Genesis chapter 3. I told you that this is the chapter you need to know. You need to understand it. You need to get it. This isn't just a story. This is the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Now, we move into chapters 4 through 9, and they're all about sin, and it just increases exponentially. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and so they're, they're doing that. They're fruitful and they're multiplying. And not only that, remember how long they're living? These people are living seven, eight, nine hundred years. So in those years, they're having babies. Every few years, they're having more babies, and their babies are having babies. I mean, they are proliferate. The, the planet is growing, and the, 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 the whole idea here in these chapters is that you're going to see the, the uh, amount of people increasing, and we see that. But, but it begins, chapter 4 begins, right after their, uh, Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, they're going to have their firstborn which is very, very interesting. Chapter 4 begins with the firstborn man of sin. See, Adam and Eve were created by God, sinless, and they fell into sin. But this is the firstborn that's a sinner. He's born and he has that nature, that sinful nature. And who is it? It's Cain. Everybody knows Cain, right? Raising Cain, we say, when, when it's evil or bad or whatever. Cain. Look at verse one of chapter four. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. 
and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That's what his name means. Then she bore again. This time his brother, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat. And the Lord respected or received Abel's offering, but he did not respect or receive Cain and his offering. And Cain got angry and jealous and his countenance fell. So with the birth of Cain, we have this, we have the the first family, you know, the book of Genesis, the beginnings. You have the first family, the first child, the first sinner, really, and then the first brother, siblings, Abel and Cain. Then there's the first crime, the first murder. All of this is a result of sin. See, you understand, if you understand sin, you'll, you'll understand this whole, the story and how it progresses. Cain becomes the first unrepentant man. He, he gives an offering to the Lord. He's a, he's a farmer. So he, he gives the offering. And, and when you read the scriptures later, you'll find that God receives wave offerings of wheat. He receives oil and water, different kinds of offerings. But his offering, Cain wouldn't, wasn't received. Why? Because Cain did it like glibly. He did it like, okay, Gad says, I got to give you something here. Here's this. I See you later. There was no, there was no personal uh, effort. There was no honor to the Lord. But Abel, on the other hand, he, he, he gave of the fat. He had to kill the animal, and he gave that sacrifice, and, and it broke his heart to do it, and he sensed his own sin. He was close to the Lord. Cain got mad at his brother because his offering wasn't received. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we read about Cain over and over in the Scripture, but look at what John says. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, murdered his brother, Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So we have righteous Abel and we have Cain, who's this evil one. The the point is sin is increasing now. It's going to start, it's going to build from that, it's going to increase. And by the time you get to chapter 6, God is going to wipe out all these people, these these, uh, people that lived before the flood, the pre-Diluvian people. Why? Because of sin. So chapter 6, go to chapter 6, verse 5. God sees, when he looks at the world, now he sees total corruption. So we're missing all these pieces. I've already taught extensively on that. You you can actually, uh, we're going to have this available on a flash drive for like five bucks if you want to go back and study this. But verse 5, notice the Lord saw that the wickedness, this is chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see what I mean about about sin just corrupting everything and man is just left rampant. There's Adam and Eve and they knew their sin and they were supposed to teach their children. The result of their sin, Cain was actually banished. They they lost their son. One was dead, and the other they couldn't see anymore because he was banished. That was the result of their sin. But then this sin and rebellion and this universal condition of of the heart of man, just broken and, and twisted. We see here 
In verse 5, the, the, the thought and intent of his heart was only evil continually. Then verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Wow. I mean, think about that. God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Why? Because of the sin and the rebellion and the violence and the wickedness of man. That's when God determined to bring a judgment and start over. He's going to do a redo, a start over. That's really what the the flood is. So the Lord said, I'll destroy man, verse 7, whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. I'm going to kill it all. I'm going to wipe it out. Creeping things and birds of the air. And here's why. I am sorry that I've made them. Wow. Again, By the time we get to chapter 6, it's been almost 2,000 years, 1750 to about 18-something, 100 years. If you go through chronology, how do I know that? Well, you you look at the names, the names and all the genealogies in the Bible. You can figure out how long man's been on the planet. And for this so many years, almost 1,800 years, by the time we get here to this chapter, there, there could be up to 7 billion people on the planet. Because they're living longer. They're not dying after 30 years or 80 years. They're living to 900 years. The planet is really populated at this time. And God looks at everybody on the planet. All they have is evil in their heart. They're violent toward one another. They're, They're just evil, the whole lot of them. And so God gives them 120 years to repent. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. Go back there. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be, here it is, 120 years. So God is going to give man 120 years to repent. God always gives time for people to do the right thing, to make a choice. And he gives them 120 years. And Noah, for the 120 years, is building an ark, and he's telling people, he's preaching. He's a preacher of righteousness. There's only one on the planet. It's Noah. And he's telling everybody about the grace of God. He's warning them to repent and turn away from their wicked ways and violence. Noah, 120 years. And then in verse 11 of chapter 6, we have the reason for the flood. Again, here it is. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. That's the people, the people on the planet. They just had violence in their heart. And then verse 12, so God looked on the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So you have corruption and violence and, and rebellion. I mean, it's hard to describe what was going on. I mean, we, we haven't seen it. This is pre-diluvial people, people that lived before the flood. But we do know, and I, I hope you remember when we did this study, these people were artisans. These people were craftsmen. It wasn't a bunch of cave knuckle-dragon apes walking around the planet. These are people that, they they were singers, and they were making music, and they had musicians, they had artisans that were carving, very advanced societies, people that died, some possibly up to 7 billion of them. So God tells Noah he's going to judge the world. Verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of the flesh has come to me before the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God tells Noah to make an ark out of gopher wood, tells him the dimensions. It's kind of a big square box that he tells him to make. There's no rudder. There's no captain. There's no 
There's no way to, to make this boat go in a certain, it's not a vessel that's going to go anywhere. It's just a big rescue box, remember? It's God's way to preserve what he desires to preserve. Uh, animals and then these people, Noah, and, and a few selected family members. I have a picture here. This is, again, you know, what, whatever. We don't, have, we don't have the ark. We know the dimensions. It was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And you can go see. I went last year and saw that ark encounter back in Kentucky. That thing is amazing. It's amazing. The Ken Ham and his organization, you can walk through it. It's, it's amazing. It's worth, the, if you ever go back to that part of the country, you've got to go back and see what he's put together. But the ark becomes then a type of Christ and redemption because anyone who believes can get on the ark. Noah, 120 years, come and, and, and repent and come and go with us. Come, we're not going with you. We don't agree with you. We, we reject your God. And because of their rejection, there's only one door on the ark. And that door was closed when God said, and all the people, billions of people were killed in that that flood. And then God tells Noah and his family that he's going to save them. And this is what he says in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. So God's going to use Noah and he's going to make this Noahic covenant. This is a really important covenant, by the way. He's going to save a remnant of the animals and, and just these people and Noah's family. And again, in chapter 7, we get some more details. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. It tells us that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we had one of the worst rain hurricanes, uh, Harvey, back in Houston, right? In Texas. How many days? Five days it rained, right? And all the devastation? 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the flooding and the devastation on the planet? It's catastrophic. Six weeks nonstop downpour here. That's what's being described. And after it rained, it took 150 more days for the ark to finally stop floating and come to a halt on the mountains of Ararat. Not a mountain, Ararat, but the mountains. Somewhere on the, these mountains, Ararat Mountains is the, the ark way up high somewhere. Has to be up high. Three more months before Noah could see the top of the mountain, chapter 8, verse 5. And then 40 days later, Noah opened the window, lets a dove go to look for a place to land in the olive branch. You remember the story. So very interesting that back in chapter 7, verse 11, it tells us how long we have Noah entered the ark when he was 600 years, two months, and 17 days old. And then chapter 8, verse 14, tells us he got off the ark. He was 601 years old, two months, and 27 days. The Bible's really specific there. So we know that he was on, they were on the ark for over a year. Not quite a cruise ship, if you know what I mean. Stinky animals, not a lot of windows. No shuffleboard. You know, the, I mean, they're locked in on this over a year. It's, it's amazing when you think about it. When you think about the global flood that the Bible depicts in this, these chapters I'm reading from this evening, and that the water covered the planet for this period of five months, 
Only water everywhere, no land. And then God violently breaks up the earth from underneath. So the, the earth was radically different. It looked different than it did after the flood. So before the flood, it was kind of a flat, no mountains, kind of a jungly Filipino uh, island looking kind of a thing with lush, lush vegetation. I've been to the Philippines, very lush there, beautiful there. A, a mist over the earth. The sun didn't really break through. Didn't rain. It just kind of this mist protected the people and the, everybody living on the planet. And the pre-diluvial planet. We're radically different than, than the planet that we see today. Again, what God is doing is a do-over. He's recreating his creation He's wiping out everything that was violent and bad, and he's bringing, but this time the, the earth breaks up. And I think I have, the, I have that picture of the continent in there. I have a picture. See, you guys have seen, if you've looked at any geographical, see how the continents kind of fit together a little bit? Can you see that? And we believe that it was one continent with, surrounded by water. There wasn't any poles that the pre-diluvial earth was radically different, and then it all broke up just catastrophically. And, and the, the seas blew open with the mountains that just shot up, you know, thousands of feet in the air. It was a, a catastrophic, the flood, radical. You got to think of the whole world and then a washing machine kind of effect. Things are scattered and moved and tectonic plates moving. That's what the flood was. Everything is radically moved around, the earth breaking up during the, the flood, the mountains blasting from the ground. And then the fossil record proves that because you find, and I was going to bring, Wayne gave me a, a really cool fossil that he found in, I think it was up in North Dakota or Wyoming. I mean, billions of dead things buried all over the wor world, the fossil record. On tops of mountains, the bottom of seas, you find these fossil records. Everything like a giant wash tub, the flood, that's what that is evidence of. Not just glacier activity over billions of years. That's what you hear everywhere else. But the flood is what the Bible teaches. And I love this psalm real quick. Let me throw it at you here. Psalm 104, 6. You covered it with a deep as a garment. The water stood above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled at the voice of your thunder. They hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, the place where you founded them, the waters. Just the, the planets just breaking up and the waters washing it away. And, you know, the ruggedness of the mountains, you, the Tetons, if you've ever been there, gorgeous. Just sheer granite, just jutting up into the sky. This is what happened during the flood. And when the flood ended a, a year later, that's when Noah has a brand new beginning. The whole world has been redone. Everything died. And all the animals died. Most of the fish, I believe, died. I'm sure there were some that lived, but, but they died. And again, the fossil record. And here's my point here. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. 
So they were there a year. Lord, remember us? And yes, Lord, remember. remember Moses is writing this story, by the way. The, the first five books of the Bible, Moses is writing this down. Is God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind. See, there wasn't any wind before. All the, the land masses were together, clumped together. There was mist over the earth, the pre-diluvial planet. And then it all radically, cataclysmic, you know, breaks apart. And, and then there's water everywhere. So we got to get rid of the water so God makes a wind. You know how wind, like the wind today? How many have dry lips today? I mean, that's what wind does. The wind comes and it, it kind of starts that process of evaporation. And that's what was going on here. God made it wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. I love the truth of God's word. God made wind. Isn't that neat? I love that. God, God made wind. It never existed before. And then verse 2 of chapter 8, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth at the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. So Noah now can leave the ark. The first thing Noah does is he worships God. He, he loves God. He's a righteous man. So he gets his family together and he thanks God for preserving them and saving them and all these animals. It's a brand new beginning, a new world for Noah and his family. So God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all the move on the earth and the fish of the sea. <laughs> I love this truth here. God makes animals who never had fear of man. They, I mean, you slept with a leopard, you hung out with a tiger, whatever your fancy little, we didn't have plush animals, Adam and Eve and his family. They had these animals and they hung out with them. Just nuzzled up with a bear. I'm cold tonight, so nuzzle up with a bear. But after the flood, there's a different thing. God puts fear in animals. And a couple of reasons for that, obviously. He says that animals are given into your hand there. In other words, animals are used by man. And man uses animals. You have horses and oxes that pull carts and all the different animals that are used by You know, guide dogs. I mean, animals can be used by man. That God gives them to man to be used to serve people, not people to serve animals. We see a lot of that today. Christians... We, we need to preserve life, and we need to be kind to animals, and animals are our friends, but they're not people too. You know, you see those stickers. Animals are people too. No, they're not. They're not even close to people. They have no living soul. They're not made in the image of God. They're just animals, and I like animals. I've got some really cool ones in my office if you ever want to come see. But beginning in chapter 9 and verse 8, we, we get this covenant that I mentioned, no, the Noahic covenant. And it's, here's the important thing about this covenant. I got to keep moving quickly. It's unconditional. This is God making a covenant with Noah, but Noah can't produce anything to make it work. It's all God. God makes this covenant with Noah and his family, all his descendants. That includes you and me. This, this covenant here that we're going to read about, this promises for you and I. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and here it is, and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, cattle, beasts of the earth, 
all of you that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by water of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for a perpetual generations. And here is the sign. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the clouds. So these people, remember, they're getting off the boat and they're going to tell their grandkids and their great-grandkids that, yeah, there was this rain, it's raining. Oh, you know, and they freak out. And so God says, don't freak out. The rainbow, you'll see the rainbow. And the rainbow says, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not, you're okay. This was God's promise to the people, the rainbow. And, and again, we get this repetition throughout these verses that I'm not going to read them all, but 15, 16, 17, this covenant, covenant over and over. And God's using this language because he wants these people to understand his covenant is with them. It's his promise to them. And if you like rainbows, I, I like rainbows. Rainbows are very cool when you're flying in a small plane and you see rainbows. That's very cool because you know what? They don't start and end. They're actually like circles. They're very cool when you're in the, If you've ever been on an airliner and you've seen a rainbow, you've probably experienced that before. But most of us see rainbows like the one I'm showing you uh, there behind you. But again, the rainbow is like, Reminder of God's covenant of protection. He's never going to flood the earth again. But here's the real story here. Sin. We go back to sin. Look at, at chapter 9. Sin has survived the flood. Sin comes with man. And they, even though God eradicated the violence of man, sin is going to enter the world again. Noah was righteous, but his sin, he, he's a sinner. He's a fallen human and him and his children and the whole point is that sin floated with Noah and his family on the ark and sin re-entered the world and it's it's the effect of Adam's sin is still in operation in, Adam, in Noah's life and still in operation in my life and yours wouldn't you agree that, that's what this is teaching us again the Bible tells us that we're sinners no matter how hard you try to control sin, it's going to win unless you submit to the Lord. Again, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. So, Noah here. Noah gets off the boat, he, he worships, and God gives him instruction, and then what does he do? He grows a vineyard, and he takes all the wine, and he gets drunk. That, that's what the story tells us. And then, if that wasn't so bad, the first sin, he gets drunk, totally wasted. He goes into his tent, butt naked, and he's laying there. And his son walks in and, and sees him. And instead of his son's, oh, gee, the shame. Remember the shame? Adam and Eve saw each other naked. It was shame. Instead of shame, guess what he does? Ha, you see pops. Come in and see dad. Look at him laying there. He's all drunk. That's what the Bible is depicting. That they, they laughed at their father, that they exposed his nakedness again. And, and the, these aren't little boys. This isn't a little six-year-old. These guys are 100 years old. And again, they're going to live to six, 700 years old. So they're, they're young men, really. Ham looked at his father's nakedness with amusement. He told his brothers, told them all about that. They disrespected their father. Uh, two of them, you know, walked in backwards, covered him up. 
So, so they knew that they shouldn't do that, but it's, it's Ham that was immoral. That's the truth here. And then when Noah wakes up, look at verse 24 of chapter 9. Look what Noah does. So Noah awoke from his wine. He knew that his younger son had what he had done to him. Then he said, curse be Canaan, the servant of the servants. Uh, you, you shall be to his brethren. You shall be to your brethren. So the story is going to continue. We're going to Exodus, so we need to know this. You need to understand this. Canaan, who is Canaan? It's in Genesis 10 where we get the family line coming from Noah and his son Ham. And you see it there in verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Canaan is the son of immoral Ham. And Canaan is cursed. And Moses is making a big deal about this now because Moses is going to get his people from, from uh, Egypt and bondage, which we're going to read about in Exodus, back to the land of what? Canaan. And what is Moses told by God? And finally, it's, it's you know, Moses isn't able to go in, but his um, uh, br- uh, brother is going to take the people into the land. And he's told, he's told that you've got to wipe out everybody in the land of what? Canaan. And do they do it? Problem. But you have to understand why the people of Canaan were supposed to be wiped out. Because they come from Ham, who was immoral. They were a very immoral people. They were judged by God. And God uses the Israelites, the children of Israel, the 12 tribes. He's going to use them to bring judgment upon the Canaanites. Again, all these things begin to fit together as you, and that's why I'm picking these, these specific things here. Let me just get a couple more here because I want to finish this. Chapter 10 and through 11. We see all this sin after the flood, the judgment at Babel. And we come to chapter 11, and we have another beginning. It's the beginning of language. Up till this time, everybody speaks the same language. And it's Moses that tells us that God is the creator of language. Um, God created a bunch of different languages, and he creates people all different. And it happened there, the Tower of, of Babel, or Babel, however you want to say that. And like all of Genesis, it, Genesis goes against evolution and, and billions and billions and billions of years and one grain of sand, you know, and, 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 and just, you know, the, the fjords that you see in Norway and Alaska and the, the slow movement of the ice over billions of years. The Bible says in six days, God created it all. And then he reshaped it. In a hundred, or what was it, one year. In one year, the planet is broken up probably in just a short period of time, a day or two. And then after the water recedes, the planet is totally reshaped in a short period of time. And now he creates language. Guess how long it takes him to create language? Not billions and millions of years, but it just happens like that when God creates all these different nations and languages, people. Again, evolution teaches that over a long, drawn-out process, that plant life mutates into other things and becomes a monkey and becomes a man. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible says that you were created in the image of God, that we're not descendants of a lower life form, that we're made just like God. And again, sociologists today teach that society and language evolved. Different cultures evolved, and their language evolved. That's what they teach. 
they start, it's really funny, you read some books, and I don't know if you remember this in, in high school, but they start with, um, in the classroom with uh, whale sounds, you know. I don't know. No, that's, that's Dory, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, those, those deep sounds that, that come from a whale, and, the, oh, that's how language began. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that language came from God as he, he confounds the nations because they're going to build this big thing, and look how great we are. One language, one people, one nation, one us, and we're so great we don't need God. And God comes down, and he looks at it and says, no, and immediately, boom, the guys are building the Tower of Babel, and they, they're speaking one language, they're babbling, and I don't understand what they're saying anymore. So these people, they move away from each other into groups that can speak the same language. That's how God created language, in just a, a, a miraculous event. Again, that's what the scriptures teach, the beginning, the beginning, the beginning, and all these things. So I need to keep moving here and, and wrap this up. We got to chapter 14 in our study, and I'm just going to end with a, just real quick things here. We, I titled from verses, uh, chapter 12 through verse, uh, chapter 25, these, these chapters, 12 to 25, Adventures with Abraham. We learned about Abraham, this man that God took out of a pagan culture, chose for himself, and he creates a whole nation. Promises Abraham that he's going to have land, and he's going to have a huge family that can't even be numbered like the stars in the heavens or the sands in the sea. And that through him, he's going to be a blessing to all nations. Those are the three promises that Abraham has. Lives his whole life. He gets to be 100 years old, doesn't have a child. Him and his wife devise this plan, you know, to have a baby. And you, you know the story. And finally, God brings Isaac. And then the seed goes from Abraham, goes to Isaac, and then goes to Jacob. And then the last 10 or 12 chapters of Genesis is all about Joseph and the sons of Jacob, Joseph being the, the model one, and the 12 tribes of Israel, the children of Israel. So now you have a great understanding as we now move into next week, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. You can read ahead. You can look at that. But what an adventure we've been on for the last 21 months or so. And I thank God for it. I thank you for being patient as I've, I've taught it. But I believe you have been You've grown, you understand the word, you, you really get this part of the Bible. And as we move now into Exodus, it'll be so much more meaningful for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. Lord, there's so many wonderful stories uh, here that we did take time to look at in depth. And we learned much and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for this wonderful story that reveals your creation of man this wonderful historical account of how nations came to be in languages. But Lord, we thank you most for this wonderful plan of redemption that from the beginning, the very, very beginning, you initiated the lamb slain from the foundations of the world, the, your plan to redeem your creation the opportunity for men to, to know and to love you by choice becomes so meaningful. Father, I pray that we as a church would love you more and more, that we would understand who we are and understand where we've come from, but also understand the great 
life that you've given us in Jesus Christ because we have forgiveness of sin. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray the story will continue, that we as your people would study it, that we would learn from it, and the end result, Lord, would be that we would give glory and honor to you, that we would live obedient to you. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. We praise you in Jesus. Amen.